This week on the Backtable Podcast. There are more and more people learning this, and every year there are more residents and trainees who need to learn this. That's why we need to continue these high-level conferences. Now, the goal is eventually each hospital or department or division will have their own special talent that they can start to train their own, but there's still a need to have a larger, higher-level conference because you can't learn everything just in one local area. You need to be updated on many things. Unfortunately, there are people who are teaching a musculoskeletal ultrasound who really may not have as much experience as others. You know, and some of them are saying you can learn this in a weekend and then you can go do it. You know, when I teach this, I tell them you can do this, but hey, here's a tumor that someone missed, and it isn't as easy as people think. And you have to put in the time, the effort, and the work. So I think. More and more people will be teaching this, but we have to make sure we, we maintain a high level of quality to keep the field you know, a high level itself and to keep growing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Stryker's Interventional Spine Business offers the control you need, the flexibility you want, and the quality your patients deserve. Stryker is your partner in making healthcare better. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to support you every step of the way. Innovation is the driving force at Stryker. Their extensive product portfolio for vertebral augmentation and radiofrequency ablation procedures ensures that you have the tools needed to provide top-notch care. But their commitment to advancement doesn't stop there. With recent additions like the Optoblate Bone Tumor Ablation System and FDA 510K clearance for the spine jack system for compression fractures that result from malignant lesions, myeloma, or osteolytic metastasis, you'll be eager to explore all the solutions Stryker has to offer. Learn more at www.strikerivs.com. Now, back to the show. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Jason Cox. Jason, good to see you again. How are you? I'm doing great, Jacob. I really appreciate you having me back on the show. Always good to have you. And today, we, we needed sort of a tag team effort because we have a veritable titan of musculoskeletal radiology with us today, uh, Dr. John Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Hi, thank you. Really good to have you, Dr. Jacobson, and many people listening will uh, certainly know about your contributions to the field, and, and today we will talk about the, the topic of musculoskeletal ultrasound, which has you have been intimately involved with throughout your entire career. And with that being said, before we dive into the meat of it, would you please tell us a little bit about your background, including your training and your career path leading to where you are today? Okay, no, that'd be great. Yeah, so I was, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and when I was two years old, I, no, I'm kidding. So uh, <laughs> m my training uh, started in residency at Henry Ford Hospital, fellowship uh, with Dr. Resnick at UCSD. I went back to Henry Ford for a couple of years, working side by side with Monarch Van Holsbeek and his team, and then I took the job at University of Michigan for the 23 short years. And then I was at University of Cincinnati for a year. And currently, primarily at private practice at Lenox Hill in New York, but I also work part-time back at UCSD in San Diego. How excellent. You've really been kind of all over and, and during the entire time, 
you have grown up in parallel with Muscus Hill to ultrasound and really pioneered that. So can you tell us a little bit about what were the origins of your focus on this topic? So I have to give a lot of credit to uh, one of my mentors, which is Marnix van Holsbeek. When I was a resident at Henry Ford Hospital, he was one of the faculty, and I gravitated toward him because of his intelligence, and he loved working, and he had a great personality. You know, you can really have an influence on people indirectly just with your personality. I remember this one afternoon, I approached him, I said, I'd like to do a research project, and he said, how about musculoskeletal ultrasound? I remember thinking, what the heck is that? You know, I was a second or third year resident. Uh, lucky for me, I said, for sure, I'll do it. And then uh, he exposed me to it. And then I was fortunate enough when I was at UCSD, which was primarily a lot of MR research, we borrowed an ultrasound machine and put it next to the magnet or in the, not in the magnet, would never get it out, but the room next to the magnet. So throughout my year of fellowship, every MR project, we, we involved ultrasound. I would check an MR on a patient and I would do an ultrasound. And then finally, when I took the job at Henry Ford after fellowship, then I was working side by side with Marnik. So uh, he had a major influence on, on where I am today. Fantastic. And I, and I do have to say that uh, Jason has recently done an interview with uh, Dr. Van Holsbeek, which will be available around the same time as this one. Uh, that, that'd be great to listen to in context with this. I hope he remembers me. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he yeah, does. Yeah, I, I think you might have came up. I don't know. I can't remember. You probably said, oh, that, that Jacobson character, and you probably did this, you know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, hey, that actually, you know, when I when I was talking with Marnix about it, I, you know, he talked about growing up, his dad was a, a physician in, uh, in Belgium, and, um, you know, his dad was like, well, hey, why don't you, you know, become a radiologist, you know, there's a doctor's doctor and all this stuff. So, you know, it was very interesting to hear his point on how he ended up uh, where he is and how MSK ultrasound has evolved over the years. So I, I kind of wanted to get your take from, you know, coming from, you know, that, that mentorship perspective and then Middleton, I believe it was, that published in what, 79 or 78, the rotator cuff paper. And then, you know, from there, how, how have you seen it evolve and what's your take on that? Yeah, so my perspective, I'm getting back into, I think I was faculty at Henry Ford Hospital in uh, maybe 97, maybe before that. I remember when they came out with the 10 megahertz transducer and coming from the 7.5, I thought, this is it. Life can't get any better than this. I could finally see something. And then now, of course, that's ancient history where now it keeps going up and up. So that was the first like landmark th experience for me where I saw firsthand uh, the change in technology. But of course, it's got, it's dramatic now. I think some of the more exciting things that are here or still on the horizon, one is microvascular imaging. I think we haven't tapped into that, and that to me is very exciting. The 3D I've tried, and I don't know if there's a role for that. The elastography, I'm not sure because the grayscale is so great, but there's been so many advances and but microvascular to me is one of, one of the things I'm most interested in. Are you using that right now? Are you, because um, I'm actually very interested in that myself, but there's not a lot of publications on it yet, except for from the manufacturers saying, hey, this stuff's amazing. Well, you know, if you're grading things with, you know, Euler Omeract, how does that play out with, you know, grade three power Doppler signal versus, you know, what we're now we're seeing microvascular and maybe we're seeing too much blood flow. Yeah, I think there's so much unknown 
I mean, I'm seeing blood flow in lipomas, which is kind of scary because it was one of the criteria with conventional color and power Doppler. And what I'm interested in is after they treat uh, rheumatoid arthritis, where the conventional blood flow goes away, is there any still left over in microvascular? Is it really quiescent like we think? I just think we have a lot more to learn and the whole that field is open. We just need to do more research to understand it better. Absolutely, yeah. So speaking of that, there's a lot of focus now on uh, POCUS and you know, there's a lot more physicians that are doing ultrasound. And, and I always tell people, you know, the gateway to ultrasound really is musculoskeletal ultrasound or vascular ultrasound, because that's kind of the uh, most superficial things to look at. And, you know, you have to have certain techniques, but the anatomy is known to a lot of people, you know, like, you know, about muscles, you know, about tendons. So with different boards, you know, I know emergency medicine now includes uh, ultrasound as part of their boards. You know, and I'm getting a lot of interest from internal medicine. I'm getting a lot of interest from a lot of different doctors. And then obviously, you know, it's always been here with, uh, ult- with ultrasound and radiology. How do you see different specialties coming together and making one, I guess, you know, a unified approach to, to ultrasound, specifically musculoskeletal? Yeah, so different ways uh, to approach that. Uh, I guess I'll start by saying that even in the beginning, I didn't care who perform the ultrasound as long as it was a high quality. There are many people in the field who've spent their whole career uh, writing papers and proving its effectiveness. You don't want someone to get their hands on a transducer and just have uh, you know four studies and have people say, oh, it doesn't work. We know, we know it can work. But to get to your point, you know, one thing is through, through educational courses. I know several of the courses I run and my primary course that I do in San Diego I bring in other subspecialties because we all learn from each other. So that's one thing is not to be in silos because you don't know what the what you need to know for, for the other person's perspective. So that's the one thing. You know, we've talked about in the past trying to have a, a standard like the RMSK, but uh, rheumatology has their own thing. You know, I'm not knocking that. It'd be great if we could all come together. That may be unrealistic, but in the end, I think the main thing is not to be in silos so that if there's a primary radiology-driven course, have a rheumatologist and a physical medicine and emergency doc part of the crew there and vice versa. So to me, that's really important to keep us moving forward together. And the, some of the, the newer departments are, are using this. They may not know about the history of what we've been working on for 30 years. You know, there's experience there and there's um we've learned a a few things along the way that we can share but at the same time we have a lot to learn from them as well yeah that's a great point john you know there's a lot of stuff that i did in fellowship that you know was great but then when i got out into the field and i was practicing you know i'd have the orthopedic surgeon or the hand surgeon come down and say hey i got this patient can you see this with ultrasound can can we do this and i'd say you know i've never tried it but let's go look at it and then together we sat down and diagnosed a problem like uh, Wartenberg syndrome or some master knot of Henry lesion at the radial nerve that, you know, even the surgeon hadn't even seen. So I think that's a great point. Yeah. I really like what you said, Dr. Jacobson, about the the importance of the cross-disciplinary training. And uh, I did also want to talk a bit about your course in San Diego. So when I was a third-year resident, I wanted to learn a bit more about musculoskeletal ultrasound. We did, in my training program, 
a pretty good amount of ultrasound guided uh, interventions, injections, and that kind of thing. But on the diagnostic side, we we weren't doing too much. So I asked, how, how can I learn about this? And I was told, uh, you should go to the John Jacobson course, the John Jacobson course. So I Googled John Jacobson musculoskeletal ultrasound, and I found out the course that year had just happened, but I did go uh, during my last year of residency. And it was a really excellent experience, and I'd highly recommend it. And one of the things I liked the most about it was how many different specialties there were involved. The thing I didn't like about it is it seemed that in terms of the audience, radiology seemed to be maybe a minority. <laughs> maybe I was, maybe it was, maybe that was a miscalculation on my part. But um, I would like to see more radiologists kind of get involved in this. Uh, I want to come back to the topic of how uh, specifically for radiology. Uh, what our future is there. But tell us a bit about the history of the course. What was the impetus and how long has it been going on? Yeah, so we just finished our 18th year on Sunday or Saturday, three, four days ago. It's early September right now. And basically, uh, I was fortunate to do research in ultrasound at the crest of the wave where there, there was, it was like low-hanging fruit and there were so many people who wanted to learn it, and I felt that I had enough experience and that I could help everyone. And there were no other, well, there might have been, but there were none or very few other musculoskeletal ultrasound courses out there. So I was fortunate to be there early in the game, and we've kept it going for close to 20 years now. Yeah, it was, it was a really excellent course, and like I said, I'd, I'd really highly recommend it to anyone looking to get into that. But to piggyback off of that, you know, my experience, I think, is pretty typical. Uh, Jason uh, went to a fellowship program where there was a lot of musculoskeletal ultrasound, and a lot of the fellowship programs do have that. But what I've noticed is in radiology residency, this is one of the areas where there is a lot of uh, inconsistency from program to program, kind of a, a dearth of, you know, we talked about standardized pathways and that kind of thing. But I'd just like to hear your thoughts on incorporating this training for radiologists, not to you know exclude any other specialties, but just because this is something that's certainly within our wheelhouse. We work on every other modality of musculoskeletal imaging, well you know acquainted with ultrasound across organ systems. So, kind of how have you seen radiology's involvement change over time, and where do you see it going? Well, I think uh, the trend has been to, at least from a fellowship perspective, that most fellowship programs, this information I've received through the Skeletal Society of Skulls Radiology, most of them do involve some degree of musculoskeletal ultrasound. So that is the primary time when it is introduced. Now, remember the residents, you know, they have to cover a lot in those four years, and They'll, they'll study what they need to know on the exam, and there isn't a lot of musculoskeletal ultrasound. There's some on the exam. So I view it more as a fellowship subspecialty uh, topic. I know uh, residents will often take a, a separate month of ultrasound, but those are the ones that are going into directly in prior practice, which is not as, well, it does occur, or the ones going into a fellowship to prepare them for it. So I see it in training in radiology as a more of a subspecialty fellowship level uh, emphasis. Sure. Yeah. A little bit difficult to cram in even more into those four years. Uh, so kind of learning the uh, fundamentals of musculoskeletal pathology and imaging, I think is is 
obviously uh, how it's done and I see what you're saying. And uh, to piggyback off of that yet again, a question I actually got from our, our colleague, Doug Beal today. He wanted to know, do you see any way that musculoskeletal ultrasound could be scaled up to the degree of other modalities such as CT and MRI? Uh, yes, in the radiology sense, uh, it all relies on the technologist and that's critical. Without an ultrasound technologist, like every other ultrasound exam, with the reimbursements going down ev everywhere, it's not going to survive. And I guess I can talk a little bit about my experience with this. So the prior practice uh, position I have at Lenox Hill, they have incredible musculoskeletal ultrasound technologists. And I read their ultrasound cases remotely, and I can read a case every three minutes. And to do that, that's what you you have to do to manage your RVU's reimbursement. Reading an MR every six minutes, I need to read two ultrasounds at times it takes me to read one MR. And it can be done with the technologist trained up. Now, it's funny, I was in academics for 20, whatever, three years. Now I'm doing prior practice and academics. I was always told in academics that the RVU system is, is bad. I disagree. I think it's fair. They all tell me that um, the thought was ultrasound can never survive in prior practice. That is incorrect. They'll say you can't make money or break even. That is completely incorrect. And I think some of the academic leadership are misguided because they they don't know, you know, where where let's say a, an academic faculty may be uncomfortable doing ultrasound. Now I can't read one in three minutes. I have to check every case. They'll say, well, first of all, the problem is your technology isn't trained isn't trained up. The second thing is maybe you're not trained up enough. So that trickles up to the chair saying we can't do this work. And then the chair will say, what do we do? Well, we'll just stop doing ultrasound. We'll do more MR. I mean, it is so short-sighted, but I've heard it over and over again. So I I guess I'm going on a tangent here, <laughs> but I feel passionate about this. Now, from the leaders in radiology that say, well, you know, we're losing this, this field, let sports, ER, physiatry take it over. They don't understand that, you know, a sports doc is seeing their patient. What about all the primary care docs, who's going to be doing all those shoulder ultrasounds? I mean, there's enough work for all of us to do. There are now insurance companies in several states that will deny an MRI of the shoulder until you had an ultrasound, and that is going to continue. So we have to be prepared to take care of patients. Getting back to your, your question, we have to train up technologists, and unfortunately there's no great school for that. It's on-the-job training. So a lead leadership has to understand that we need to take time to invest in that once the technologist is trained and then another one, then it grows very quickly. It just takes a lot of effort and patience. Absolutely. Jason, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. You have a very uh, unique experience doing a lot of uh, ultrasound in your private practice clinic as well. What, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think John's hitting the nail on the head there. He, he's exactly right, but I will say that you know, my unique practice is, is, you know, I came up with this idea when I, when COVID hit and I wasn't allowed to do any radiology yet. I had to sit there at the clinic every day and not do anything. So I just started, you know, working with the sonographers on MSK ultrasound while, you know, and I was in private practice then. And then again, after COVID I was, I was doing, you know, maybe like four or five ultrasounds a day because that's all my practice would allow me to do due to the, you know, I had to do the ultrasound myself. So 
I had a four week out schedule for my ultrasounds to be done. I would, you know, get fit in, in between, you know, reading MRR or, you know, CT or breast or whatever. So then I, what I decided was I was just going to pull this out because all the patients kept telling me, you know, cause I'd ask them, Hey, why are you here? Oh, the insurance company said I had to get this ultrasound before I could get the MRI. So I'm just here going through the motion. I'm like, Oh yeah, you don't need an ultra. You don't need the, you have a torn rotator cuff. You know, that's, you really don't need the MRI. They got the MRI anyway, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think it is doable. Uh, right now we're doing about 30 ultrasounds a day in my private practice. We only do ultrasound. My practice is called ultrasound first. I have three sonographers that are MSK trained. I trained two of them. And then uh, one of them was trained at by TFE actually. So yeah, John's right. You know, I have been involved with all of the MSK ultrasound technologists in my area in, in one way or the other. And it's really like 10 people. So, you know, in, in the greater St. Louis area, there's really only 10 sonographers that are actually capable of doing what John's talking about. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And one, another thing that I enjoyed about the San Diego course is that there were a lot of techs there. There were a lot of techs who were sent by their practice to, to learn there, which I think is great. But uh, you both bring up the point that it, it is tough figuring out how to get son- sonographers trained up to the point where they can really do these exams uh, efficiently rather than sometimes the musculoskeletal ultrasound for a, for an inexperienced sonographer with MSK it's just kind of treated like a soft tissue ultrasound you know looking for a fluid collection or, or that kind of thing which the utility of that is uh, you know less than it could be so you both have different experiences working with a lot of different techs and I know there's no easy solutions but uh, thoughts on say a, a program is looking to start and get more into this, where do they start with getting their techs up to speed? Uh, so what I do is I try to identify one technologist to be the, the kind of the lead. And it shouldn't be someone who's too young. They have to be skilled enough, but they have to understand how much work it's going to take to go the next step. The next thing I do is determine what body part uh, would be sent to us because you need the material. And, you know, if you have a foot and ankle surgeon or podiatrist, maybe that's your window. But I try to, to identify one or two joints only, or primarily, I should say, with one technologist and bring them up to speed on that and then grow the practice from there with other body parts and then bringing other technologists and have that tech be primary in trying to train up the other technologists. But then you need, of course, support from administration to free up your time to train the tech. Then also when you have a new technologist to double them up and you, so you're paying sal- salary or you know hourly wages to a tech who is not doing anything but shadowing for a bit, we, you need to have that support to invest uh, in that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. From my perspective, John and Jacob, how I've done it is I get a tech that can do vascular and general. And then I start from the vascular side of things because they're so great at looking at at arteries and and veins that those things are running right next to nerves. And then I move them on to nerve ultrasounds. And then while I'm training them up on that, I then bring it out away from there into joints for arthritis and then to the rotator cuff and so on and so forth. And this whole time I have like a tiered level of experience and abilities. And then when I sign them off to be solo on these these exams, then you know, whenever the board comes in, you know, we have three rooms running. If it's real busy, 
then the person's going to take the thing that they can do independently. And if, if it's not real busy, they'll get to go in on, like, say, the, the thing they haven't done before. And that's how I've practically been able to do it as far as, uh, you know, running a business and not going broke doing it. Yeah, that's important. As it's been said, reimbursement is close to oxygen in terms of uh, importance. And these are really important considerations when trying to get this off the ground. Would either of you like to talk about interventions? Very small topic of ultrasound-guided interventions. Jason, I know you, you dabble a little bit. Dr. Jacobson, a little bit as well. And just tell a little bit about what's exciting in interventional musculoskeletal ultrasound right now. So um, most of the interventions are joint injections, bursal injections, tendon and sheath injections. And some of the joints we do under fluoro. But then um, the area I was getting into is tendon treatments. And what I was doing was PRP, whole blood and fenestration. And that was a big part of my practice when I was at Michigan, where when I patients came in for you know, hip pain, I would diagnose a problem and then talk to them about what they need and give them options. So that was exciting to be involved in a, like a treatment algorithm and importantly, one that actually works. I know that when there's a, a business model where you have to make money, I know there are people out there who are promoting PRP or platelet-rich plasma. I basically lay out a la carte all the options and they ask me, was each cost? Which is better? What would you get? And I don't push one. I mean, they all get better. You know, that all, I mean, 78% of patients get better with any of those three treatments I mentioned. So uh, to answer your question, that was the exciting part for me was the, the tendon treatment options. I would say most of my procedures, everything's based around these injections to a, to a degree. I try to do more advanced things. Um, I actually am the biggest clinic in this area that does tendon barbitage. I don't know how much you had with that, John, but, but, you know, we, and when I say big, you know, I do 25 cases a year. It's just that, you know, in St. Louis, for some reason, nobody's ever heard of it. It's like, if you have a, you know, a one centimeter chunk of calcium in your supraspinatus tendon, they're just going to cut it out, which I had never heard of, you know, coming from Mizzou. I, you know, St. Louis is just a little bit different that way. But then I also do uh, ultrasound guided carpal tunnel release, which is, you know, one of the more invasive things, but it's right up the wheelhouse, you know, of any, especially if you're doing IR or MSK with injections, if you're, if you've trained in that in your fellowship, you're a hundred percent capable of doing that. It, it's basically the combination of a, um, angioplasty balloon stuck to a mammatome needle <laughs> and, uh, it's a pretty slick device. It's very safe and very effective. And, you know, the support for it is growing. They're going to, they're working on getting a uh, code for it to be paid. But right now the biggest problem is it's, it's a self-pay thing, you know, like insurance doesn't pay for the device. They'll, you can, you could actually bill for the uh, surgical code for carpal tunnel release to insurance, but then the device, you know, you've got to have them pay for. So, you know, just throwing out a little business stuff there. I did train with 10X device in fellowship but there hasn't been much in the way of traction in, in using that in out in practice. It's just, you know, you don't have enough volume to really treat people with that. And since then, PRP has come very far forward, you know, with orthobiologics, uh, you know, the whole organizational system that's out there that's pushing for that. But I, I do PRP injections every day, cash pay. 
I give the patients also, like John said, you know, hey, we can treat this with a steroid or we can treat it with the PRP. Here's the pluses, here's the negatives. One thing that I do, John and Jacob, is everything I do is is directed by a doctor's order. So, you know, they're they're saying, hey, you know, they've already seen an orthopedic surgeon and the orthopedic surgeon says, yeah, you probably need a PRP. So then, you know, they write the order, they send them to me, I do it, and then they follow up with that orthopedist. I do have some of my own patients, but the vast majority of them are coming with a doctor's order for either PRP or steroid injections. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, and and I do want to talk about that next. But f- first, I do want to put in a little bit of plug for uh, your first appearance on the show, Jason. Uh, this is one of the previous episodes where we talked a little bit more about uh, interventions. Really enjoyed that conversation and a good one for our listeners to to check out. But so you brought up an, a really excellent point about kind of the the paradigm in radiology, which is is kind of order based. And in, in the world of interventional radiology, we're seeing sort of uh, an evolution kind of splitting off of, of being more clinical and seeing the patients and in, in follow up. And of course, there's, there's many interventional radiologists have been doing this literally for decades, but it's becoming a little bit more prevalent. That being said, the, the volume of patients who need things and the number of specialists who need someone who's really good to do something that they don't do, like a PRP injection or or even a typical joint injection, is always going to be there. So for both of you, I, I'd kind of like to hear your thoughts about how that paradigm and those two paradigms might coexist, or perhaps one may need to become dominant. Any thoughts on that? So I think it, it depends on your practice. I know when I spent that time in Michigan, I developed great relationships with the clinicians, and someone call me and say, what do you think? Someone send the patients say, do what you think. Then they're the ones from outside the system, which would say, please do this. And I'd usually do, but of course, if there was something where I felt was not appropriate, then I'd reach out. So I would say in my practices, it's been really a mix of both. It just depends on your relationship and connection with the referring clinicians. So I, I have somewhat of a mix. I try to keep it order-based because I don't keep call hours and I don't have, uh, you know, follow-ups and things, except for my carpal tunnel releases, you know, I spend a, uh, a lot of follow-up with them and I do see them primarily, or, you know, it'll, it'll come from, you know, a doctor will send the patient to be diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome. I do the ultrasound. They've got a, uh, you know, 0.2 centimeter squared cross-sectional area of their, their nerve, their positive sonographic tunnel sign. You know, I am the whole specialist there. And, you know, then I give them the, the options, you know, Hey, we can do some steroid treatments and hydrodissection, or, you know, we could move right into this carpal tunnel release and I'm taking the lead on that. But if it comes down to, you know, I have a lot of orthopedic surgeons, I have uh, sports medicine docs, I have even pain docs that will send to me certain things, you know, like an iliohypogastric nerve or, you know, something that they're not used to doing without fluoro. And so, so you have to, you have to be kind of careful about stepping on toes and things. You know, I have a ton of hand surgeons that send to me if I'm cutting out all their business for their, their carpal tunnel release, you know, you're going to get a little, little, uh, little backlash on that. So it's always keeping it professional and keeping it, you know, a lot of courtesy. And, you know, if I see a patient and I don't think they're a good candidate for in office carpal tunnel release, you know, I've have patients that won't do it without general anesthesia. You know, they just are like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I've built a relationship with a hand surgeon that also does the carpal tunnel releases with ultrasound guidance, or he can do it traditionally. And, you know, we will, I'll send him patients and, you know, vice versa. So 
I think building those relationships is how you handle all that. And I think if you did want to build your own practice where you just hang a shingle and say, hey, I'm an MSK radiologist that does interventions or MSK interventional, you really could at this point get your own patients and, and see people because, you know, they're out there. Before I came into this private practice, I had my own pain intervention clinic and I saw patients in the hospital and did, you know, ablations and SI joints. Um, and I, you know, I did um, kyphoplasty and all that. I just didn't want to do that anymore for a hospital. So that's why I left it. But you can do it. Absolutely. And one of the common refrains I've heard is uh, throughout a lot of the things I'm interested in is, oh, you can't do X, Y, Z because surgeons won't send you referrals. And it, it gets back to something that was mentioned earlier is that a lot, the vast majority of patients with musculoskeletal issues are being seen by a primary care specialist first, family practice, internal medicine, uh, often a mid-level provider. And they're just overwhelmed by the, uh, the volume that they see and uh, how many, you know, issues they have to get through in a day. And so uh, that's, you know, one place where I think uh, we can, as, as radiologists, can be really helpful to them. But Jason, you mentioned in our first discussion that um, you get a lot of uh, complex ultrasounds that you'll need to do yourself, sent to you by subspecialty uh, orthopedic surgeons and uh, post-op and have a lot of difficult things. So being able to work with those subspecialists as well really gets to the the nature of the relationships like you both. Yeah, that's right, Jacob. And I'm, I'm sure John's got the same experience with working at Michigan that you just get to know these people and they actually see your value. Um, I have a really good relationship with you know, neurologists that do uh, neuromuscular testing, they will see something that doesn't make quite sense on there and then recommend specifically my name. Hey, you need to go see this doctor to get an ultrasound of this nerve. And they, you know, the the orthopedic surgeon that sent them to there will send them to me. So, and then that surgeon hears about it and he's like, oh, they call, they'll call me and say, hey, what's, what's this about? You know, because they've never heard of it or they've never even been exposed mm-hmm. to it. Awesome. Well, that's actually all the questions that I have, uh, Dr. Jacobson uh, or, or Jason. Any further thoughts on this very, very niche, small topic of musculoskeletal ultrasound? Yeah, I'll make uh, one quick comment. I've already made the comment about workflow and uh, RVUs and the need for tech, but just one comment about the training, why this is so important. There are more and more people learning this, and every year there are more residents and trainees who need to learn this. That's why we need to continue these high-level conferences. Um, now, the goal is eventually each hospital or department or division will have their own special uh, talent that they can start to train their own, but there's still a need to have uh, a larger, higher-level conference because you can't learn everything in just in one local area. You need to be updated on many things. And also, there's unfortunately, there are people who are teaching a musculoskeletal ultrasound who really um, may not have as much experience as others, you know, and some of them are saying, you can learn this in a weekend and then you can go do it. You know, when I teach this, I, I tell them, you know, you can do this, but hey, here's a tumor that someone missed and it isn't as easy as people think. And you have to put in the time, the effort and the work. So I think more and more people will be teaching this, but we have to make sure we, we maintain a high level of quality to keep the field you know, a high level itself and to keep growing. Agreed completely. Jason, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, speaking of 
that like I, just a couple statistics that I find interesting is the last time I looked, I think there's less than 600 MS, RMSK certified sonographers in the country. Is that more than that, John? Mm, not sure. Yeah. The last I saw it was uh, around 600. So number one, we need to we need to get the sonographers trained. Number two, after you do that weekend or week-long course, you have to go do practice. And right now, the best time to best way to do it is to buy one of these little portable ones, and and go you know sit down with your wife and kids and just start doing this stuff as soon as you get back. And then get when you get back to work, anytime there's something interesting, you know if I see something on an MRI, there's a person on the scanner. It's not unlike me to say, hey, bring that patient back to the ultrasound room. So because even if you know like once the first time, like um, I actually diagnosed um, epiploic appendagitis once with an ultrasound. I was doing a hernia exam and I sent him over to the CT. You know, I, I was pretty confident, but I'd never seen that diagnosed before. So I was like, yeah, throw him on the CT scanner and sure enough, there it was. Oof. But, you know, that's how this kind of stuff happens. And, and you have to have that impetus and MacGyver type, you know, skill set to, to do it. Something else I wanted to talk about, John, um, you are doing some great stuff in Africa. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I'm working with a nonprofit called Imaging the World. Their primary focus is obstetrical ultrasound in Uganda. So I'm helping them to develop a shoulder ultrasound, um, not only a diagnosis, but a treatment plan where we are going out into the very rural aspects and teaching physical therapy. We're teaching a technologist to do the ultrasound and teaching North Peak Surgeon to do the ultrasound-guided injection. So it's, it, we're making slow progress, but we're making progress. And we'll be, I think we're moved, we're going to be looking to Western Kenya as our next uh, focus. But yeah, it's exciting to, you know, with these portable ultrasound machines, we're now bringing the equipment out to where the need is because to get from rural, a rural village in Uganda to the capital, it could take a day and a half on a, on a motorbike where if you can put this tool in the hands of the people who are local, it really can make a difference in patient care. So that's what we're working on so far. What kind of time investment would a radiologist need to go on a trip like that with you? So I typically go one to two weeks a year. I check the cases remotely from wherever I'm at, so I continue the feedback process. And it, so it depends. I know there was, uh, there was COVID, then there was Ebola a few months ago. It's just always something in the way, but that's okay. We're patient. But I try to get out there uh, two, about two weeks a year. It just depends on the year. Is, is that something that you're open to, to look for other radiologists to get involved? Sure. You know, I'm always open as we start to expand uh, even further, the more, uh, the more help, the better. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I'm really glad to, to hear about that. And as an aside, my next focus is uh, rural North America. I really want to focus on that. So I've been trying to make connections in American Native reservations in New Mexico and First Nation in Northern Alaska. So we're at the infancy stage, but that's really where I'm trying to drive my next focus. Rather, Alaska is not as far as Uganda, and I feel there's a lot of people in need in in the United States. I don't want to ignore them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, with with global health, and uh, there's some other amazing initiatives going on as well. It's it's sometimes easy to forget that there are areas within our own country that have very difficult access to care as well. And ultrasound is kind of prototypical of how the evolution of technology and medicine 
brings the capabilities down to the front line. Uh, that's and I, musculoskeletal ultrasound in particular. That I think that's why it's been become so popular among so many different specialties is because these clinicians see the patients, they can examine them, kind of get an idea for what's going on, and use the ultrasound to come up with a treatment plan. And you bring that out into Uganda or rural Oklahoma. I mean, the the advantages are, are really obvious. I do want to spring off of that, and uh, y- you both are pretty avid travelers, and, and I hear something about a, an Antarctica cruise uh, in the future. Would you, would you like to talk about that? So I also work in uh, continuing medical education. I have a company called Institute for Advanced Medical Education, or IAME.com, and you know, when I first got involved in this, I wanted to do something big after COVID because I know everybody was cooped up and, and just itching to get out there. And then I thought I had a partner that had gone to a, a weekend course for ultrasound and he came back and he was like, he called me, he was like, hey man, I got a rotator cuff. I don't think I can do it. So <laughs> I was thinking, how can I get this guy into like 10 days straight of ultrasound training where, you know, we can just get, nail this thing down for him. And I thought, what better way to do it than, you know, stick people on a, on a boat and go to Antarctica because, it, you know, you, you're not getting away from me. You know, nobody's, nobody's getting away. Uh, they're going to get that training. And then I, I thought, Hey, who are the best people in the world that I could, um, get to go on this trip? And I, I actually reached out to Marnix Van Holsbeek and John Jacobson intending just to get, hopefully hoping to get one amazing speaker. And then both of them said, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how it evolved. Uh, John, wh- what do you think about it? Yeah, I think uh, it'll be very exciting. Uh, I understand the program is a great adventure. It's not only the uh, the medical education, but just the adventure itself of going to Antarctica. And the fact that you're going to have ultrasound machines on board, so they'll be hands-on. I assume all the machines will have wheel locks. I don't know how, you know, so roll around. Uh, no, it'll be very exciting. I, it'll be very new. I've never done anything like that, so I'm, I'm excited about it. Excellent. And IAME.com is where our listeners can learn more information about that course. Yeah, and then uh, John, how do, how do people get a, get more about your uh, course series and, and other things that you're doing? How do they learn more about that? Uh, I have a website uh, that I put all my lectures, links to courses like the Antarctica one, and I'll have to Google it because I, I don't ever put my own website yeah. in. As you can yeah. see, I'm not very good at self-promoting. <laughs> I, think I can say from experience, if you Google John Jacobson, MSK, you you will find your way there. <laughs> it looks like it's uh, Jacobson, M-S-K-U-S dot com, and that's spelled J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N, M-S-K-U-S dot com. So that's the website, and what I put on there are links to free videos, all my lectures. I, I have something about Uganda, how to get a hold of me, and also links like to the Antarctic course, how to register, and things like that. Awesome. Sorry, I dipped out of the frame for a moment because uh, one thing I did want to uh, share is uh, the excellent fundamentals of musculoskeletal ultrasound textbook. This is my autographed copy from the course last year. Uh, so I can't say enough about how good this uh, resource is. Really just excellent material, uh, pictures, and also has some uh, videos as well for access. So I, I just needed to make sure uh, to throw that in there. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, that's, that's the first book everybody should start with. Honest. I mean, that's how, that's how I did it. That's how I was taught in my fellowship. I read that for the boards before I took them and Hey there, I had five or six questions on there. So, you know, it's, it's creeping in there, guys. You better watch out all you residents. Oh, yeah. 
Definitely. Well, I, the last thing that I'd like to ask uh, both of you is uh, I always like to close hearing the guests what they're most excited about. And so MSK or medicine in general, what is getting you most excited? And so Jason, you first uh, on the spot here. Well, you know, my, my whole goal is to see MSK ultrasound become as ubiquitous as MRI. And uh, I, I guess I'm most excited about it actually coming to fruition here, at least in the model that I'm doing it. And my clinic is just growing, you know, if, if I, it's almost viral here now. So uh-huh. it, um, it's very exciting to see that happening. And, you know, just, just how everybody's, you know, coming forward with it, with the, the advent of, you know, more affordable and more accessible machines. So I think the technology is exciting too. Dr. Jacobson? You know, for me, I think just two comments. Everything I've ever done in my whole career is based on patient care. And seeing that this tool is getting into anyone's hands, but importantly, being taught how to use it, being patients, that's what we're all doing it for. But what I'm excited about from day to day is when I get to interact with other subspecialties who are using ultrasound, learning from each other. I think every time I talk to someone in a different field who's using ultrasound, you know, they ask me, how do you look for this? I'm like, what do you think of that? And I just love the exchange of knowledge. So to me, I get excited about that every day. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think a great way to go out that, and one of the big missions of Backtable, we're all about collaboration and learning through that. And I think this is a prototypical of that. And so uh, with that, I'd like to thank you both so much for your time. Uh, Dr. Jacobson, as one of the legends in MSK, it's been uh, great to have you here. And uh, any closing thoughts from either of you? I think I'm done with my closing thoughts. <laughs> I ran out of them. <laughs> Jason. Likewise. No, uh, just just continuing education, guys. Just when you get out there, don't let people to tell you. There's, there's a very heavy... Um, very heavy pressure, as John had alluded to, from administrative people to not do it because they make a lot more money on those MRIs. Um, right. Remember, the technical fee is 60%, so you guys got to go get your own 40. Right. I do have one, That's I do have one closing uh, comment. Practice, yeah. practice, practice. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not in Antarctica, practice, practice, practice. Well, thank you both so much for your time. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Roy Kennebrew. Thanks again and see you next time.